new vegan. Thanks, Adam. Um, we've just been having a conversation, some of us, about uh, the future and about mainframe and, and the role that mainframe might play in what goes on in Derby uh, in the years ahead. And um, I thought I'd talk a bit about ambition, and it may be maybe sort of half an hour or so, so there's an opportunity for some questions and comments at the end. But I wanted to start with, um, I don't know if you, you know, a guy called Andy Haldane, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, uh, and a seriously smart man, made a speech at the Glasgow School of Art a couple of weeks ago, uh, which I thought was really extraordinarily interesting for a banker. He said, we have got to make the British economy a creative economy, and he said, we already have a knowledge economy. In future, we will need a creative economy. And then this is the bit I really liked. Knowledge is vital for school exams and pub quizzes. That's the end of that. Imagination is vital for ideas and innovation. And the fact that somebody who is a chief economist is thinking in those terms, and not just talking about the creative industries, but talking about the creative economy, I thought was very interesting. And it's particularly interesting because, of course, you know, we've got, we, does seem to me we have a real crisis in this country, which is a crisis of real deep division. And I'm not talking about Brexit, I'm talking about the fact that Brexit is one of the consequences of that division, which is that there are a lot of people in a lot of communities that feel that they've been completely ignored and left behind. And talking about things like the creative economy is all very fine if you live in some parts of the country and it doesn't relate to anything that's going on in other parts of the country. And the thing that's important about that is, what we all know is that the way these things start is thinking about identity and thinking about place, and people feel that they haven't got much pride, perhaps, in places where they live anymore. And that's certainly true in some smaller towns. I recently just stepped down as chair of Creative England, but a lot of towns and cities that we work in all across England, there's a feeling of people not being recognized. And it put me in mind of a conversation I had in Japan just after the tsunami of 2011. And that was a, a real sort of traumatic event for people in Japan because it had such a huge impact on their national community. And the, the chief exec of one of the big breweries in Japan said to me, We've put a huge amount of money into arts projects in the Fukushima area. And I said, these people are homeless and completely destitute. What are you putting money into arts projects for rather than coming where they need is housing and basics like that? And he said, when people feel they haven't got anything, the fastest and the only surest way to rebuild their sense of dignity and identity is through the arts and culture. Other people are doing the tents and the housing. We're doing the arts and culture. I thought it was a really interesting point. And so I think about the creative economy, where we go next in the UK, also put in mind of a comment by Amanda Levy, who's a very prominent architect. Uh, she said recently, the old model of the British economy was we imported raw materials and exported finished goods. The new model is we import creative talent and we export creative ideas. Well, importing creative talent is gonna be something which is more difficult in the future. Exporting creative ideas is something which we really do have to think about. And so I want to focus a little bit on this thing of identity, uh, identity in place. And the government, as you probably know, has recently published an industrial strategy. 
And uh, it's a very interesting document. It's, it's, there's a green paper, and the way these things are, green paper is the sort of initial discussion paper. And although the creative industries featured in that, it was literally three paragraphs in a document that was 130 pages long. So you could say the creative industries didn't get a huge amount of crack. But one of the interesting things in that was they said one of the key issues, they, had, they identified 10 pillars for the future. And one of them was creating the right institutions to bring together sector and place. And the reason I was thinking of that was because I do think, and I'll come back to this, that mainframe has got the beginnings of being that kind of an institution, and that's potentially why it's very important. But that industrial strategy, although it says quite a lot about place, it doesn't say very much about the creative industries. It's much more about the, the economy of things, the economy where you put stuff in boxes and send it out of the country through Felix, though. It's not about the economy of ideas, the economy of influence, the creative economy, in a way. And if you think the old model of how we saw so many towns and cities in this country was about what the place did. So obviously, you know, Derby, rail engineering, you know, trains, planes, and cars, trains, planes, and cars, yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, Sheffield was steel, St. Helens was glass, um, Manchester was cotton, Birmingham was any old metal bashing, Coventry was bicycles, uh, Nottingham, I suppose, was lace or boots the chemist, depending on your point of view. But places were identified very much by what they did. And as we've lost that over the last 20 or 30 years, one of the things that government's been trying to do, I guess, is to replace that with culture as a means of identifying a place. Uh, and it goes back to the conversation my friend in Japan, you know, culture is absolutely crucial to the identity of a place, but it's only a starting point. And we've seen with things like the City of Culture program that it can give a huge boost to a community, Liverpool, Derry, Hull. So Hull as a City of Culture has been fantastically successful, but you think, how long is that gonna last? How long will that last? All the bars that were full last year uh, with people going to visit Hull because it was City of Culture, are they gonna be full in two years time? What's the longer term impact gonna be on that community? So culture is a kind of starting point, but where do you take it then? How do you make it sustainable? And so I wanna talk about three or four things that seem to me are the key elements in, in, in thinking through how we identify issues that make our cities and communities feel like they've got some distinctiveness and some kind of specialness that not only gives people a sense of identity and pride, but also is a solid basis for economic development. And you could say, you know, people say we're now in the, in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and I guess it'd be true to say the first two industrial revolutions were about specialization. I mean, first industrial revolution, steam, coal and iron. Second industrial revolution, electricity. Third industrial revolution, digitization. And now the fourth industrial revolution, which is this kind of merging of machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, what some, uh, what some people are now calling the singularity being the point at which we 
create machines that are smarter than we are. And then what do we do? So sort of biology, sociology, technology, all kind of merging together in quite a kind of confusing mix. And if you say, look at the first two industrial revolutions, and in a city like this, from what little I understand about Derby, uh, first water-powered silk mill, quite a big deal, uh, that's still part of Derby's heritage, 1720, 1730, something like that. And then at the of a history of engineering and sort of precision engineering, watchmaking, stuff like that. And then uh, 1840, 1840s was Midland Railway, then kind of halfway through the 1840s, some of the railway companies merged. Uh, where were they going to have their engineering works? Kind of Derby was in the middle of the network that they created, so they put the engineering works in Derby. So then it becomes a kind of railway town, and then there's specialist engineering growing out of that. And then you go forward another 60 or 70 years, beginning of the 20th century, Rolls and Royce get together, going to start a car business. Uh, where are they going to put it? So this is a really smart piece of industrial strategy. The local borough council owned the electricity company, and they made a deal with Rolls-Royce and said, if you come here, we'll let you have cheap electricity, which is why they came here, so I read. Um, so then you get this mixture of development over time, which is a little bit of serendipity, but it also, it's, there's a kind of logic of things build, things build on things, and Derby gets a kind of reputation and gets a, of course, not employing everybody in the town by any means, but it gives the place a particular kind of sense of identity. And then, when you get to the third industrial revolution, it all goes in completely the other direction. And that's when you get the real impact of globalization and the fact that we start to separate design from manufacture. And it becomes easier and cheaper to make things at the other side of the world. And then all the old methods and systems that have tied together education, training, skills, a particular labor market, what grows in a particular area, all that kind of begins to disappear. And it's not just about the coal, coal field communities disappearing, it's about much more than that. It's about uh, the purpose of many of our cities changing in a kind of fundamental economic way. And we're still wrestling with that. And government policy, <coughs> focusing on culture, focusing on places, trying to address that. But uh, the fourth industrial revolution seems to me an opportunity to really think through, again, how we get specialization back into communities because it is going to be about creativity. And creativity grows out of culture. People's skills and people's relationship with each other <coughs> is defined to a great extent by where they live. And once you get some sort of commonality, then the same kind of like-minded people begin to attract each other. Uh, you know, the classic example being Hollywood, um, which started because the sun shone and it was a very cheap place to make films. Hollywood was actually a retirement home for Methodist ministers. Um, most of them would have been rather shocked by what the town turned into, I guess. Anyway, that, that kind of specialization that comes with creativity is intimately connected with culture. And, and how we how we build on the culture and cultural inheritance of a place 
to think about moving forward into the fourth industrial revolution seems to me really crucial. And um, so four, four kind of elements that seem to me we should be thinking about in thinking about that future. One, of course, is Brexit, because the impact of Brexit is going to be pretty significant. Whatever happens, and it's going to change the way our economy works. And of course, there are some very particular issues in this part of the world with the manufacturing industries. Who knows how that will play out? But it is certainly going to create a kind of shake-up in the way we think about skills. And if you subscribe to that model, I was mentioning a moment ago that the basic driver of the British economy now, to a significant extent, is we import creative ideas, export. Uh, import creative people, creative talent, export creative ideas. If we're not importing creative talent, then we've got to grow, we've got to focus more on growing it at home. So there are some real consequences that come out of, out of Brexit. And then the second thing is, um, what's happening to the creative industries and the creative economy? And something I was talking about with a group uh, an hour or two ago, and that is, uh, I do a lot of work all around the world for the British Council on creative industries. And you know the creative industries are pretty much the fastest growing sector anywhere in the world. The UN produces a big global report every three years on the creative economy. And this is evidenced by what they say. And it's not just in sort of Western Europe and North America. It's growing <coughs> all around the world. In fact, the fastest growth is in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, where the fact that two-thirds of the world's population now have access to some kind of mobile phone technology is completely transforming economies at an incredible rate. And we know in this country, creative industries are still generating jobs at twice the rate of the rest of the economy, at least twice the rate. And they've done that consistently since the first definition that we came up with 20 years ago. Now worth 100 billion a year. The UK economy in gross value added. That's not turnover, gross value added. And that means in terms of employment and in terms of GVA, the gross value added. On the government's own figures, not the kind of um, ambitious figures that those of us who work in the creative industries like to book out, but on the government's own figures, that is more significant in terms of employment and, and generation of wealth than the car industry, the aerospace industry, and life sciences put together. It's a huge part of the economy. But it is also a part of the economy which is becoming globally very, very competitive. And we're used to saying, we are the most creative people on the planet. Aren't we wonderful and clever in the UK? Other people copy us, we come up with the ideas. Yeah, uh, to some extent that has been true, but it's becoming less and less true because other countries are investing massively <coughs> in skills. And the kind of skills that we need for a creative economy, I was mentioning the conversation that we had here an hour or so ago. Uh, I was talking to the man who runs the design council in Singapore. Two things he told me which shook me. One is, the current policy of the government in Singapore is how do they make every company in Singapore part of the creative economy, because that's how the future's going. The second thing he said to me was, in thinking about what are the outcomes they want from their secondary school system, they're realizing that exams that test stuff that kids have learned by heart is not a very effective way of preparing them for the future. 
And he said the three outcomes that we're going to start looking for are wisdom, kindness, and curiosity. Can you see how that does not relate to the education system that we have in this country at the moment, or the education system that exists in many parts of the world? My point is that this is an area which has been hugely important to our economy over the last 20 years. But if we don't really up our game, we're going to get very rapidly left behind. Uh, and not by European competitors, but much more by what's happening in East Asia and in other parts of the world. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is this whole thing about the fourth industrial revolution. Because what we do know is that what's happening in robotics and machine technology and artificial intelligence is already creating massive waves in the labor market. I mean, if driverless cars become a really significant issue, that is 400 million cab and van drivers in the world out of business. I mean, this is not gonna happen right away, but my point is <laughs> these things are already happening, and we're all used to the automated checkout in the supermarket, the ATM at the bank, and so on, but already, in all kinds of other areas, the legal profession, a lot of tradition, work traditionally done by solicitors clerks can now be done more efficiently by machines. And, um, you know, a couple of years ago, when a lot of the McDonald's burger flippers in the US went on strike for this $15 an hour minimum wage, and the, the chief executive of McDonald's said, you go on strike, we're coming up with a fantastic robot that will make burgers much better than you, and we'll never go on strike, and we don't have to pay anything. So go to hell, basically. Uh, of course, any revolution on this scale is going to generate a lot of new jobs. It's also going to sweep away a lot of jobs, and not just low-skill low skill jobs. I read somewhere recently um, a fire in a big, a big retail warehouse somewhere. I think, it was, I think it was maybe somewhere in this part of the world. Anyway. Uh, in, in somewhere near the A1, where the, the, one of the problems that the firemen had was that the robots who were running around the warehouse picking up the commodities and packing them, of course, didn't know that there was a fire on, so the firemen are trying to put out the fire while the robots are still working. I mean, my point is, you know, already these things are happening. Uh, it is a reality, and we have to really think about what are the jobs for our children as well as for ourselves that are going to be properly future-proof. And all the evidence, particularly in the US and the UK, is that the more creative a job is, the less likely it is to be replaced by a machine. It's a kind of obvious thing to say. But in the US, the figures are really startling. It's like 46, 47% of all existing jobs are potentially under threat from AI. Here, Oxford Economics did a big survey. It's like 38%. Anyway, it's massive. and. The more creative a job is, the more likely it is to be sustained. In fact, all around the world, the general consensus seems to be that there are three areas where the fourth industrial revolution, as it really kicks in, will generate new jobs, or where, where the need will be for new jobs. And that is creative industries, one kind or another, things that feed the creative economy. Secondly, personal social care, because that's becoming more and more of an issue in our society as we get older. 
But that's also happening all around the world. In Japan, it's already a really significant issue. In China, it's becoming a very significant issue because of the one-child policy. There's a whole generation of people growing old in China. I haven't got anybody to look after them. So this thing, personal social care, big area of growth. And the third area, of course, is environmental technologies. Now, of those three, the, the one that is going to be most crucial is the creative industries, creative economy, obviously, because it's the creative industries and kind of thinking in the creative industries that will enable us or assist us in developing systems of personal social care that are affordable. And in the area of environmental technology, we need to be thinking pretty fast, not just about how we mitigate the impacts of climate change, but how we adapt to the impacts of climate change. So there's this global consensus about three areas of growth that are most robust in the face of the fourth industrial revolution. And in all of them, creativity and creative industries is crucial. And then the fourth point is really picking up on the same thing, and that is the uh, International Panel on Climate Change has come up with some pretty robust analysis that makes it clear that in about 11 years time, by 2030, if we don't change the way we operate pretty significantly, climate change, um, you know, summer this week, depths of Siberian winter at exactly this time last year, uh, the impact of climate change is going to become climate chaos, and then we're going to be living with some pretty serious consequences. And again, if we're going to turn that potential crisis into an opportunity, it is about creativity and the creative industries and creative, really creative solutions, not just creative industries, but the whole creative economy. So these four things, Brexit, creative economy, uh, the artificial intelligence, the fourth industrial revolution, and climate change, uh, you know, these things are not sort of wild bits of speculative future. They are the realities of today. In fact, the only one that isn't, <laughs> isn't a dead cert is Brexit. <laughs> but the other three are happening now. And uh, it may sound very sort of apocalyptic to say that, but that's the reality that we're dealing with. And if our economies don't address that, and we don't think about it, then you know, we're going to be living with some pretty serious consequences pretty soon. Um, So, that all sounds very kind of grand and distant, but what, what, what do we actually do about that? Um, I think you know, the, the fact that the government's got an industrial strategy that mentions the creative industries and recognizes the importance of the creative economy is important. The fact that it's a woefully small part of what the government <coughs> at present has planned the industrial strategy's got a four billion pound budget. On the most generous assessment of how they've divvied the money so far, Creative Industries gets 100 million. That is two and a half percent of four billion for what is a really important part of the future of our economy. But then you put it in another context, which is if you look at the cost of Hinkley C Power Station, HS2, third runway at Heathrow Airport, all big, very traditional 20th century infrastructure solutions. The bill for those three is knocking on 100 billion. That is 25 times 
the total amount we're investing in the industrial strategy, of which the creative industries are getting two and a half percent. So, you know, we're not remotely serious enough about what's happening at a national level. Um, but there are interesting things happening at local and city level. And it may be because these new industries and new skills are so diverse and draw on such a kind of diverse range of policies. It's not just about education, though it's crucial. It's not just about arts and culture, though that is crucial. It's also about labor, it's about skills, it's about education, it's about industrial strategy. So it cuts right across the whole piece. And it's not just the, I've had a big whinge about the UK government. Every government in the world is wrestling with how you deal with these realities that don't fit into the convenient old 20th century shapes of government departments, education, culture, business, skills, blah, blah, blah. You've got to be thinking in a more holistic way. And it seems that that is something that is much easier to do at a city and regional level because you can literally get people around the table and think about practical solutions. And there are practical solutions. There, you know, there are 60, 60 big cities around the world now that call themselves creative cities because they see that as a way of thinking about their economic futures, but also about how they want to position themselves as places. And it includes some really hard-nosed, money-focused cities like Abu Dhabi, spending 17 billion on building huge cultural centers on Sadiat Island, because they say, if we want our economy to prosper in the future, we've got to have a much stronger cultural offer than we have. In Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Assembly, pretty hard-nosed business people on the whole, they've invested three billion US in building a huge cultural center in, in West Kowloon in, in Hong Kong, because they recognize that you can't disentangle the cultural activity from economic activity anymore, because if you're going to have a creative economy, you have to have a climate which attracts creative people and encourages people to express themselves creatively to engage in creativity and culture. So these things absolutely merge together and they seem to work most easily at a city level. And then to be very practical and prosaic about it, there are some really interesting initiatives coming out of the Arts Council. There was recently published a thing called the Cultural Cities Inquiry, which is a mixture of Arts Council and people from uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and the Core Cities Group based in Manchester, which I think, I think Nottingham is one of the core cities of London Derby is. But there's also, there's a center for towns, there's a center for cities. So really it's all these kind of regional organizations and local organizations thinking about the future. And one of the things that, that, um, that they came up with, which I thought was a really interesting idea in this cultural cities inquiry, is what they call asset portfolios. And their point is this, that there's a lot of activity going on where the values and mindset of the people engaged is broadly speaking similar. So we have the art, we have the subsidized arts, but arts kind of merge into creative industries. You can't really draw a distinction with them. Creative industries also merge into some of the businesses that are thinking about environmental sustainability and how you help to build community resilience. So these things in traditional economic terms are all very different, but actually in terms of their kind of mindset and their values, they're quite 
similar. And what they mean by portfolio, asset portfolios, is if you take all these little organizations and small companies and you start thinking about them together as a part of the economy that support each other and feed each other and help to sustain each other and spark value off each other, then you have something very significant. And I was doing, um, I mean, really practical terms, I doing a thing in, in, in Cornwall a few weeks ago with a whole group of people. There's a group of museums in Cornwall who formed a partnership, nine of them. And they had a, a meeting with, with some filmmakers, some digital tech people, some people who are working in sort of sustainability businesses, everything from organic farming to wind farms and solar panels, you know, apparently a complete jumble of people. And they're all saying everybody forgets what's going on in Cornwall, but if we start thinking about how we all work together, how we sustain each other, we have a huge impact on the society of Cornwall, uh, but we also have a huge impact on the economy of Cornwall. And we need to think about how we work together and collaborate and cooperate together to maximize the impact of what we all do to make Cornwall a better place to live, a sustainable place to live, a place which is developing skills that are resilient to future change and something which our kids can inherit. Um, and again, that may sound very romantic, but it's a, actually quite a kind of practical proposition. So coming to the mainframe awards, uh, it does seem to me uh, interesting that something like mainframe um, pulls together people from a range of different skills and disciplines. It's got a kind of competitive element. It raises the profile of Derby. It raises the ambition of people working in Derby. All those things are, <coughs> are good. And sometimes these things just need a very, very small catalyst to begin to exercise change. And so going back to what I was saying, I just, I mean, I, honestly, I didn't know anything about the history of Derby. I still don't, but I'm kind of doing some reading the last few days. This thing of how, this, how the, the water-powered silk loom over 200 years builds these kind of identities about engineering, which finish up with what you've got here now, these three really big, powerful manufacturing companies. Out of a small catalyst, these changes do come, but they take a long time. And something like mainframe, with what goes on here in Quad, some of the companies and other institutions in the city, to really start thinking about how they might work together, collaborate effectively to think through what is distinctive about Derby's future, what is distinctive for the future of this city as the railway workshops were 100 years ago, as Rolls-Royce is today. And um, I'll finish just by saying, in, uh, I'm on the, the Local Economic Partnership Board for London and also on the Cultural Strategy Board for London, and we're increasingly trying to make sure that these things work together. So we started a, a little program called the London Borough of Culture, sort of based on the city of culture idea. There's 32 boroughs in London. It's a competition between them to run a borough of culture. The first one is up and running this year in Walton Forest. Um, and the next, next year is in Brent. Now Brent, at the City Hall, uh, at the Greater London Assembly, we gave Brent a million pounds. That was their prize for winning the borough of culture. 
so far they think they've put together 10 million from local businesses putting in you know, literally 500 quid here and 1,000 quid there, and local people, and people who think it's a great idea. So they've got a real buzz going around this borough of culture. And then on the back of that, we launched a thing called Creative Enterprise Zones, which is how do you turn some of that energy into real businesses? And in Croydon, which is one of the boroughs that bid for a Creative Enterprise Zone, they have a consortium now thinking about the future of Croydon, which includes uh, 14 arts and cultural organizations, but five big property developers. And again, I mean, it may go nowhere, but I just think, you know, that is a, that the potential of getting together groups of people who are thinking about where they live in a way that cuts across social, cultural, economic boundaries that we're so used to thinking in terms of, has got huge potential. And it may sound very romantic, and the future may sound very apocalyptic and so on, but I think we do have to start thinking in absolutely radical ways about how we sustain a future for this country that has got some degree of equity and equality across the regions, has got some degree of economic stability, even in these kind of uncertain times, but also is part of giving people a sense of pride and dignity about where they live, wherever they live. Um, and I think that these simple processes like mainframe can be the, the grit in the oyster that starts that sort of thing going on. So that's a ramble, <laughs> but that's the end of my ramble. So if you have any questions or comments, do please say.